Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When we talk about parenting and leadership, sometimes people misinterpret it as treat your employees like kids. Mm. And I want to be clear that this is not what we're saying. What we're saying actually is treat your kids like they're adults <laughs> in a way. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to today's episode. Uh, We're in season 11 now, and I'm uh, so delighted to be able to introduce you to our guest. This work that uh, our guest has done is uh, its amazing. I've never seen anything in this depth or the type of research and work around the concepts we're talking about today and so much practical application. And we're diving deep into a concept that comes up repeatedly on the show and in so many conversations, but I think you're really going to get a lot of value uh, out of our conversation. I know I have already from reading, so I've been very, very much looking forward to uh, this conversation with Dr. Amur Kaisi, who is an award-winning professor of healthcare administration at Trinity University, which is a top 15 program. He's an award-winning author, teaches courses in leadership, professional development, public speaking, and is the director of the executive program there at Trinity. His research focuses on leadership, coaching, and strategy. And Dr. Kaisi is a national speaker with the Huron Studer Group and a faculty member with ACHE, a certified executive and physician coach, and works with top leaders all over the country to maximize their leadership potential. All of that's great, but the reason that I've invited Dr. Kaisi to this show today is because his most recent book, it's called Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership. Two things you don't always think about in combination, and uh, reading this book, there's just so much content in here for human-centered leaders. So, uh, Dr. Kaisi, Amur, I am so delighted to be able to welcome you to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David. Great to be here. I'm really excited about the conversation. And yes, please, we can go first names. All right. Well, Amr, I know that uh, uh, you listen to the show, so you know the first question that I'm going to ask you, which is, uh, and you can go back as far as you want. It's totally up to you. But your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. That yeah, I I, I was expecting this one, and and you know, I I have to say that. When I think of myself as a leader, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, and, and this may not be an earlier memory, but it's just the first thing that comes to my mind is, is my responsibility as a parent. I find that as parents, we have a lot of leadership responsibilities. And, and I, in fact, in, in many of the conversations I have with leaders when I'm coaching them, we, we get to a point where we start talking about parenting for, for those who have kids, because there's a lot of intersection between the two practices. So, so I would say, you know, when I think of myself as, as a leader, I don't think of myself that much at work. You know, I don't lead a large team at work. I'm a university professor. I, I you know, do most of my speaking and coaching on my own, but it's mostly at home where I feel that I'm a leader. Um, and, and, you know, one of those experiences that I think about where, 
I had a practice and then I started changing it is, is a conversation that I had with, with my daughter a few years ago. Um, and, and, you know, she, she was just, be, you know, turning um, 13 at the time, you know, teenagers and, and you know, it's, it's, it's uh, challenging. She's a great kid, but it's always challenging to, to meet teenagers at, at their level. And, you know, it, it would be conversation after conversation where she would come to me with a problem and I would jump in to offer a solution right away, you know, and, you know, you, you need to do this. You need to do that. Listen, listen, I, I've done this before. I have experience, you know, just if you do what I'm telling you to do, this will not be a problem. You'll solve it. And I did that a few times until she finally once, you know, kind of like mustered the courage and said, you know what, dad, like when I come to you with these issues, I, I don't want a solution sometimes. I just want you to listen. And that hit me straight in the face. I'm like, wow, how did I not think about this? How did I not have the self-awareness to realize that sometimes people come to you for a solution, but other times they come just to vent. And it was an eye-opening experience. And since then, I've been intentionally trying to, whenever you know my kids or, or other people come and want to talk about something, to ask very clearly, you know, do you want me to fix this or do you want me just to listen? And, and sometimes it's with students, sometimes with, with you know, others where you give them that option and then they tell you what you want. And I find that it's a great practice for leaders to have when their team members come to them with, with issues to, to just offer that option. You know, do you want me to be a bucket or do you want me to be a tool, right? There's a difference between, between the two. And so, so I, I would go there with, with um, you know, some of um, those um, leadership experiences that have been powerful for me. And that, that element of parenting, it comes in so many leadership conversations because it is a, a leadership relationship. Absolutely. And yeah, the, yeah. The and, and, you know, like when we talk about parenting and leadership, sometimes people misinterpret it as, oh, what we're saying is treat your employees like kids. Mm. And I want to be clear that this is not what we're saying. What we're saying actually is treat your kids like they're adults <laughs> in a way. Right. And, and that is that is a much more productive way of, of approaching it. That is such an, a vital clarification. I appreciate you you sharing that. It's uh, because whenever that topic comes up, I, I do have that in internal dialogue with myself of wanting to make sure we're not communicating that. But you said it so succinctly is let's lead our children if we're our parents and, and do that in that way. And you know, calling attention to what you're talking about there, the the practice of listening and uh, we were talking about a previous episode of the show, Discipline Listening with, uh, with Michael Reddington, and, and that act of figuring out what is, what is actually needed in this moment and how can we add the most value. And I like to think, is this a vent or do they need an intervention? And that, that dichotomy there of, you know, sometimes listening is the solution. Sometimes letting somebody bounce that off. You know, I, I think about my own, where I work with a coach uh, from time to time. And I'm not looking for them to give me solutions. It's the act of processing it all mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and figuring it out. I can often get there. Uh, sometimes I need a little more guidance, but I can often get there if I can just talk it through. Right, right. Takes a, takes a bit of the humility uh, aspect of things that we're talking about. Well, let's, that, that, let's dive into Humbitious there. So at the 50,000 foot, 50, foot level, uh, ambitious. Obviously, you're conjoining. You're, you put together these two words of humility and uh, or humble and ambitious. 
So the power of low ego, high drive leadership. So can you, at the 50,000 foot overview, when we're talking about humility and ambition and leadership, what are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we start with the concept of humility, it, it's really important to clarify what humility is and what humility is not. Because as we all know, there are sometimes misperceptions about what it is to be humble, right? Maybe some people interpret it as a weakness or as lacking assertiveness or, you know, that maybe you're passive and you sit on the sidelines. And, and that's not really what humility, if you, if you understand it deeply, is all about. Humility is not about underestimating our abilities. It's about looking at our abilities as accurately as possible, you know, understanding what we're good at, but also understanding what we're not good at and the impact that we have on others. Um, so, so when we start looking at the research on humility, aspects of it such as self-awareness come up. Aspects like appreciating others that work with you also come up. But there's also this concept of open-mindedness, which relates to listening, as we were just talking about. It's, it's about admitting and understanding and acknowledging that I don't know everything as a leader and that I'm willing to listen to other points of views. I'm willing to admit when I make a mistake. I'm willing to admit that I'm not familiar with the situation. So, so that's humility on, on the one side. Now, ambition is a great complement to humility because it allows us then to reach for the stars. It allows us to set bold visions and to go out there and execute them. But we're not doing this on our own. We are doing it with other people. We're involving other people. We're listening to them. And we're appreciating them when, when they help us achieve our goals. Other aspects of ambition is, is speaking up, is pushing back when appropriate. It's not avoiding the difficult conversation. So I would put all of that under ambition. And, and this way we have a nice interplay between those two um, traits or qualities. And so I appreciate the distinction of what humility is and is not. And in the book, you also tease out the difference on the confidence side between confidence and arrogance. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that's also a useful distinction for leaders to have in mind. And where, where are we putting our foot into one or the other? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, this is something that I talk with my graduate students about a lot. And, and, you know, we can imagine a spectrum where we go from one side of the spectrum, one extreme, which is you may have imposter thoughts, right? Where your confidence is very low. And then you have the other end of that spectrum where, where you know, as you said, there's arrogance where, where you have very, very high confidence that becomes, you know, an overused strength. And, and then, you're, you know, you're very self-centered. And really what it's all about, where you fall on that spectrum is the relationship between your confidence and your competence, Right. Um, if you think about it, someone with, impo with, with imposter thought is someone who has competence, but their confidence is much lower than their competence. So they don't see that they are good at things. And that's why they start questioning, do I belong here? On the other end of the spectrum, we have people whose confidence is much higher than their competence, right? They think they're much better than they really are. And, and as you know, that's, that's a dangerous um, combination to have. And so what we're aiming for somewhere there in the sweet spot in the middle, around the middle, is a situation where our confidence matches our competence, right? Where we know what we're good at, but we also acknowledge what we're not good at. And, and we approach things and situations and people with curiosity and with the humility to learn. 
That's such a useful model. We, from a leadership perspective, uh, longtime listeners are going to recognize the confidence and competence uh, dichotomies there in those continuums as a method of coaching and leading your people effectively Absolutely. too. And you've got to have a laser targeted conversation. Are we encouraging someone who's not as good as they, or who is better than they think they are, or are we mm -hmm. performance coaching someone who yeah. is not as good as they think they are? Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, so let's get into, uh, as I mentioned, there is this book. I, I love the book for a couple of reasons, the way it's written. You've got so many excellent stories that draw out. I mean, even this difference between confidence and arrogance, you've got some great stories that illustrate it talking about the U S women's, uh, soccer team and, uh, now, you know, the back-to-back -back world cup championships and were, were they confident? Were they arrogant? Yeah. And where is yeah. that boundary? But it's not just stories. You've also got a tremendous amount of research. So, and we're not going to necessarily go into all the numbers and all the research, but I want, I want our listeners to know that when you pick up this book and when you hear what, uh, Amur is, is saying here, that it is backed in depth by a significant amount of work that has gone into this. And, and uh, I appreciate that. I want everybody to know that uh, as we're, we're getting into these conversations. So, uh, Amur, you talk about, <laughs> there's this, this, uh, 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 section that you go from, you call it from disgruntled to gruntled. And uh, Karen, uh, when she read the book, I know she she laughed out loud and, and highlighted that. And this was several months ago. And then I'm reading it. I had the same reaction. I just love from disgruntled to gruntled. But I want to uh, quote here from this section. You say, humble leaders are transparent about their personal limitations and their willingness to learn from others. They're confident in presenting themselves as works in progress. As a result, their followers feel validated in their own development efforts because the message is, it's okay to be a work in progress here. So first, love the message there for, you know, for leaders in terms of how we're communicating and making it okay for people to be a work in progress by being a work in progress ourselves. Do you have any stories that stand out or, or some um, moments of seeing that in practice that are particularly memorable for you? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, it, the, the, the whole <laughs> disgruntled to gruntled thing, that, that's a, a Michael Scott quote for, for uh, fans of The Office. So they will, they will know what that refers to. And, and you know, before I get to the, the specific story about engagement and and the, the leaders who show up like this you know if, if you if you may um david i want to say just a word about the research you know because because you noted that this is a, a heavily researched book and you know that was my intention with the book now we both know that this is not the first book on humility right there, there are other books on humility what i had noticed is that not many of them are showing the research you know there's a lot of um, you know, storytelling, there's a lot of experiences, which are all very valid, mm -hmm. but, but I wanted to see, okay, is there research that documents this thesis? You know, this, this, this is not a new idea, humility and ambition, right? Jim Collins talked about it 30 years ago in, in Good to Great, but I, I wanted to see, okay, well, this was 30 years ago. What about more recent research? Do we have research in academic journals, you know, peer-reviewed research that shows us that, that this idea still holds. And what I was, you know, very pleasantly surprised to find was there is tons of research out there published in some of the best academic journals on leadership and management. The problem, though, is that 
most leaders don't read those journals. You know, your average leader who is running a team of 50 people and, you know, going from meeting to meeting and putting out fires every day is not picking up Academy of Management Review to read a 30-page paper, you know, on, on humility and confidence. So that was my goal from the book is how can I read all of that research, synthesize it, curate it, and then summarize it and present it in an easy to understand way to show that this is not another flavor of the month idea. Mm -hmm. This is not just, you know, a a new fashionable thing that, oh, we should be humble and ambitious. There's there's empirical evidence that that supports that. And and I want people to be aware of it. Um, Now, to to go back to the specific question about engagement, that that is what the research show us. And, and, you know, that research that you you were quoting about leaders who show up as work in progress, right? That gives their team members the permission to say to themselves, oh, it's okay to be work in progress in this team, in this organization, which means it gives them the permission to ask questions. It gives them the permission to bring half-baked ideas to their leaders. It gives them the permission to ask for development opportunities. And we know that when employees and team members are doing that, they are much more engaged in their work. They, their motivation becomes not just for a pay raise and not just for praise from my boss, which are always important, but their motivation becomes, okay, I want to become the best version of myself as team member A or team member B. And, and that's, that's the, the, you know, the connection to the um, you know, move from, from disgruntled to gruntled. One of those employees that were interviewed in that study I mean, says very clearly, you know, when I work for my humble leader and when my humble leader shows up as someone who admits that they don't know everything and who asks for my help, I actually enjoy coming to meetings and staying late to work for that leader. Now, let's, let's think about that for a minute. We have a team member saying they enjoy coming to meetings <laughs> and staying late. Where, where else does that happen except in an environment where the team leader is showing up in this humble way and admitting what they know and what they don't know and asking for help? So, you know, it, it, I'm sure you've talked with a lot of experts and I've, I listened to the show and I've heard some of these conversations. And there are leaders all over the country right now asking, how do we engage our employees, right? How do we keep our employees engaged? You know, the great resignation, burnout, blah, blah, blah. Everyone wants a magic pill to solve that problem. Everyone's like, just give me something out so I can do it tomorrow. There's no magic pill. You, we want to improve our employees' engagement. We have to reset our leadership approach and start showing in, in this way that, that we just discussed. It's not magic. It's the work of showing up. <laughs> showing up. Absolutely. <laughs> you mentioned Jim Collins' work, and uh, it was a moment of humility for me because I thought, wow, I remember when that was new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it feels so recent. It's not yes. as recent as it feels anymore. No. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I'm imagining that people are listening right now and going, okay, I, yeah, I, I, if they've been listening at all, they're definitely keyed in understanding the value of the humility, transparency, the authenticity, those, those aspects, the vulnerability. And one of the questions that inevitably comes up and you address it head on and you, you talk about the research about this 
is it a challenge that can happen if you are showing up being a humble leader in an authoritarian or a hierarchical organization? So you're in an organization that has a lot of that authoritarian or hierarchy, hierarchy to it, which they're out there, they're still there, is that initially you might not be trusted as much in that organization by your own team. And you don't shy away from that. That's a reality. Uh, and you've got the research to back it up. And then there are some things that can happen through that. So I wonder if you could walk us through some of that conversation and yeah. how we navigate some of those challenges for listeners who might find themselves in that situation. Yeah. You know, one, one of my other sub goals of writing this book is, is to reinforce the idea that there are no absolutes in leadership. There is no one practice that works in every situation for every team, right? And, and yes, I am advocating for humility and combining it with ambition and all of that. And it works most of the time, but doesn't work all of the time. One of those situations where it doesn't work is, is the example that you just referenced where you come in as a humble leader, but the organization doesn't believe in that. You know, you may have bosses and, and your bosses, bosses who adopt the opposite, who are, you know, for lack of a better word, just complete jerks, self-centered, you know, dog a dog kind of environment. Everyone is competing. No one is collaborating and all of that. So you come in to try to impose this leadership approach. If you're on your own, it's not going to work. It's not going to be effective because your employees are not, it doesn't match their expectations of what a leader should, should um, how a leader should behave. So we, we uh, have research on that that shows when the, the leader shows up as a humble one and their employees' expectations are of an autocrat, the leader is not going to be effective. And I interviewed people who mentioned to me several situations in their careers where they tried to do that and it didn't work. So the question then becomes, all right, what do you do in this situation? Well, in that situation, you try to assess and see if there is there chance to start making small improvements within your team, right? Can you start very gradually, very slowly modeling the way for your team members? And are they open to change? Are they open to viewing leadership in a different way? If they are, then you start increasing that influence and, and that circle of, of, you know, the people who, who um, change their mindset on leadership and, and hopefully you can make some changes in, in the organization. But in many organizations, that's not going to be possible. And, and that's when you ask yourself as a leader, is this the right place for me to practice the leadership brand that I believe in? You know, one, one of the leaders I interviewed, you know, she, she mentioned that um, when she found herself in a situation like this, her, her direct quote was, I felt like I'm disappearing. Mm. You know, and, and that's not a situation that you want to be in in the long run to feel like your leadership style is not appreciated. So, you know, the, the, the summary from that discussion is, yes, we're advocating for humility, but it does not work in every organization for every team. You, you have to use your judgment, your emotional intelligence as a leader to see how much humility do you bring up. But maybe in other situations, you bring up way more ambition than humility because that's what fits that situation. Or, the, or, or displaying some of the confidence that people might be expecting and then pairing it and then adding in the other elements. And uh, which gets us into when you're talking about humble leadership, you, you break the book after we get the, the introduction and the concepts down. Mm -hmm. you, you break the book up into three sections talking about humble leadership in relation to yourself, 
others, and then I love this one, and then the universe. And I yeah. always feel like it's humble leadership in relation to self, others, and the universe. Yeah. <laughs> Say it that way, but uh, so let's let's dive in a little bit talking about humble leadership in respect to yourself. And one of the yeah, I'm not, I wasn't going to dive into all the numbers, but I found this one fascinating. I had not seen this research before. Uh, familiar with Jack Zanger's work, but so you you quote the research conducted by Jack Zanger and Joe Folkman reveals that top ranked leaders, those at, at or higher than the 83rd percentile in effectiveness, are also in the top percentile in asking for feedback. Mm. And it does not surprise me, but I hadn't seen that research, that number before. It was fascinating. I'm curious, as you unpacked and explored and, and so on, when we're talking about asking for feedback, huge believer in it, all kinds of methodologies around it. What are some of the benefits of asking for feedback? How does that work from a perspective of humil humility and ambition? Yeah, yeah. You know, the main underlying concept in this discussion is the concept of self-awareness, okay, right? So, so we all think of self-awareness as an internal concept where you sit in a room, you reflect, you journal, and you think about what you're good at and what you're not good at. And we think that's self-awareness. The research shows us that that's one aspect of self-awareness, which is very necessary, but not sufficient, because it has to be complemented with the external aspect, which can only be gained through seeking feedback and obtaining that feedback. So the reason why the research shows us that feedback is so important is because it feeds into gaining a comprehensive image of who you are as a leader, not only how you think about yourself, but also how others think about you and the impact that you have on them. So with that in mind, then we have to ask ourselves, all right, now I realize how important feedback is, but, but how do I go and get it? And there is an art to it. There's, there's also a science to it. You know, you don't just go around and ask everyone, can I, you know, do you have any feedback for me? Because like, first of all, if you've never asked for feedback before and you're the team leader, like people are hesitant to give you feedback. There, there is a power dynamic there and, and they're going to be very, very careful in what they tell you. Most of them are going to say, you're doing great, boss, right? Um, so, so we need to find first a handful of people, if possible, that we can trust, that will give you the truth with no BS, mm -hmm. but that also have your best interest at heart. And, you know, the organizational psychologist, Tasha Yurik, who wrote the best book on, on self-awareness, I know it's called Insight, calls these kind of people the loving critics. Again, they will tell you the truth, but they have your best interest at heart. So you identify those people and you're going to have to develop those relationships over time. But you go to each one of these loving critics and you say, do you have feedback for me on a specific thing? For example, you were with me at the meeting yesterday. Did I interrupt the other team members? Did I talk too much? Did I listen? Right? Did I impose my ideas on others? And then when they give you that feedback, you listen really listen, like, you know, um, we, we learned in a previous episode. And then you say, thank you. You've given me something to think about. That is the key part there is not to become defensive because many of us ask for feedback. And when we get that feedback, 
we react in a non-productive way in that we say, no, you don't understand. And you start justifying what, your, your behaviors. So what happens when you start justifying and pushing back and defending? The other person is going to shut down. Next time we go to them for feedback, they're not going to give us feedback. Exactly. Why would they? Not making right? that mistake again. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's about accepting the feedback. Why you may disagree with it. I'm not saying all feedback is going to be great feedback. Even if you're very selective with your loving critics and you know that they have your best interests at heart, they may misinterpret some events. They may not have heard the whole conversations. So you get the feedback and you accept it as the gift that it is. But then you decide to do with it whatever you want. You know, I give you a gift. You may unwrap it right away and, and uh, you know, be happy with it. Or you may put it in a drawer and not look at it again because you don't like it. That is what we need to remember about feedback. We don't have to agree with it, but we have to accept it. And the, the nuance there is we're not thanking them for the content of whatever they said, because it might be only half informed or they might not have a full perspective or or it might be incredibly valuable and just difficult to hear at odds with our self-image or what have you. We're thanking them for the act of contributing to us, that they took the time, that they formed the words, that they gave us something to think about, to use your words. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's one aspect of humble leadership with regard to yourself and, and specifically self-awareness. So getting that awareness that we can't, I'm thinking of uh, Isaac Asimov and his quote around, uh, you know, I, I can't see my nose. If it's out of joint, you're going to have to tell me. I, I can't, uh, without a mirror or something, I'm, I'm, there's nothing I can do. I have to get I love in order that. to. I love that. that. But you also talk about self-reflection because mm -hmm. there's it, it, this aspect of it that is also true. And, and where does self-reflection come into this process for us as leaders? Yeah, so, so we, we do seek the external feedback, but we also have to take some time as leaders to sit with ourselves, right? You can't know yourself unless you're alone with yourself sometimes, right? You know, they did this, this study, Harvard Business Review did the study years ago on the schedule of CEOs. And what they found was, you know, CEOs obviously work long hours. We all know that, but in, in, you know, whether they're working 60, 70, 80 hours per week, throughout this whole time, they barely have any time alone. The only chunk of time that they are by themselves are in increments of 20 minutes or less, which typically is between a meeting or a meeting. Or let's say you have a call and the call ended early, so you have 20 minutes for yourself. But what do most CEOs, and I'd say all leaders do when, you, when they have 20 minutes for themselves? They go to email. They answer texts. They don't take advantage of the time for self-reflection because it's not a practice that they have learned over the years. So one of my greatest recommendations for myself first and for leaders is to book that time with yourself. Schedule that time on the, on the calendar as a meeting with yourself. If you have an executive assistant, tell them, this is a non-negotiable. I'm going to meet with myself every Monday morning for an hour. And we are not going to reschedule. We're not going to override this meeting, except if the president of the whole company calls and wants to talk to me, right? Then, then we, we cancel this. Otherwise, it's a standing meeting with myself. And then when you have that space and you close the door and you sit down with your thoughts and possibly with a pen and a paper, you start thinking about the feedback that you receive. 
You start thinking about things that you're good at and things that you're not good at. You start reflecting on your experiences. Let's say you are a leader who's doing really well and you just got a promotion or an award or a pat on the back from the boss. One way you can reflect on that is first to acknowledge that you've done well, celebrate the achievement and the success, but also ask yourself some hard questions such as, you know, who allowed me to succeed? Who mentored me early in my, in my career? Who gave me chances? Who on my team is doing such a great job to make me look so good? How did market conditions contribute to this? You know, we may have worked really hard on this project, but somehow things aligned and our competitors messed up and, you know, um, things happened in our favor. How did luck contribute to our success? All of these are important questions for us not to underestimate our successes, but just to look at them as objectively and possible and to stay as grounded as we can. So this is just one example of self-reflection, you know, after a success. We can also do it after failures and setbacks to make sure that we really understand what happened. So powerful. And I think, you know, it's often the case that we'll ask those reflection questions when we calm down after uh, things don't work out. But to ask those questions when things do work out or even go better than we were expecting and the the power in asking, hey, what role did other people play in this? What role did the environment play? What role did fortune, luck, uh, our competitors, whatever those are, what role did all of that play? How valuable that is. As you said, one, to keep us grounded and recognize the contributions of all those elements. And then two, also the learning from that, that we can incorporate going into the future. That's uh, just so powerful. Yeah, as you're talking um, more about scheduling that time with ourselves and, and CEOs, I was recalling uh, uh, we were at a conference recently and heard uh, um, Sarah Blakely, she's the founder CEO of Spanx, talking and uh, she about this need for the time to be alone. And she said that uh, her staff laugh at her because she does a fake commute in order to get it. She lives six minutes from her office in Atlanta. And uh, she basically gets in the car and does an hour commute in order and drives all around the city the long way in order to have that thinking time uh, and that reflection time. Now, I could not do that in a rush hour situation driving, but that works for her. So it's finding what works for you. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a great one, fake commute. I, I love that. But, but this reminds me of some discussions I had with leaders when, when COVID hit and when we were in lockdown and we were working from home. In fact, many of them said that they missed their commute time. Now that they were working from home, they didn't have that, that moment of reflection at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And that was their only time to be alone, right? For many leaders, the only time you have by yourself is when you're driving or if you travel a lot, when you find yourself on an airplane with no Wi-Fi, right? Pretty much the only time you're you're by yourself. Other than that, you're in meetings, you're talking to people, you're going in and out, and and you know putting out fires and taking care of things. That's so true, and it doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of the organization or a, a, a frontline supervisor. The principle of figuring out how you can structure your day in such a way to capitalize on that need to reflect on your values, on successes, on what's happening, on the input you're getting, so valuable. 
We are talking with Dr. Amur Kaisi, who is the author of Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership. We've been talking about uh, that combination of humility and ambition and the difference between uh, uh, humility and being walked over and confidence versus arrogance and humble leadership in, re in, in regard to yourself. So let's move to talking about humble leadership in relation to others. And this is where the open-mindedness, some of the intellectual curiosity comes in. And you illustrated this. I just love this story. Uh, uh, talking, a video of some students that were engaged in, in some learning. And ultimately this, this child says, huh, I disagree with myself. And there is so much power in that. And I thought that is out of the, out of the mouth of a child, right? I need to learn how to do this. So can you share with us a little bit about what open-mindedness and curiosity looks like in this sense and in this powerful leadership sense? Yeah, that, that, you know, that, that I disagree with myself. I, I watched that video so many times because that, that moment is so iconic. And, and it made me think how many people have I worked with in my life or how many leaders have I seen who have said something similar to that? I disagree with myself, right? So many times in organizations, but, but also in politics, when someone changes their mind, you know, when they change their mind, we, we kind of like label them as, as a, you know, someone who waffles or, or um, you know, a flip-flopper or something like that. What that story illustrates is that you may have an opinion or a take on something, and then new evidence is presented to you. You consider the evidence. And based on that evidence, you change your mind. You might change your mind. You might say, you know, I was wrong about this. And it's, it's a great trait for leaders to have because, as we said, when they model that behavior, their team members start emulating that, that behavior. So the underlying concept here is this idea of open-mindedness or teachability, or, or intellectual humility, whatever we want to call it. And this idea is all about approaching situations without assuming that I have a monopoly over the truth, right? That there are aspects of the truth that are unknown to me and that others may have. And when presented with those aspects, I can change my mind. I can admit that I may have been wrong, or I didn't look at the whole situation, or, or I didn't consider those other factors. And it's, it's a, such a key aspect of humility to, to admit that, and the research supports that. You know, Again, as we've discussed before, when the leaders model that behavior, their team members start copying some of these behaviors, and that leads to an environment that is psychologically safe, as, as Amy Edmondson teaches us. You know, it leads to an environment where employees are highly engaged. It also leads to an environment where innovation and creativity is sparked. You know, when, when you admit you were wrong, when you correct yourself, that unleashes the creativity of your team members who now know that experimentation is okay, that, you know, playing with ideas is okay. Now, I also want to make sure that something is clear in this discussion, which is you are not disagreeing with yourself every other minute. <laughs> right? You are not saying, I don't know every other meeting. Okay. So there is a level of competence there that we need to agree on. It is non-negotiable that you know your stuff. It's non-negotiable that you have the technical knowledge in the area that you're leading. 
you've done your homework, you're continuing to improve and to read and to, to understand the latest developments and updates in your specific area of expertise. So you are competent, but occasionally you are proven wrong. Occasionally you don't know the whole truth and you show up as a humble leader. Mm, mm, I appreciate that distinction. So <laughs> I disagree with myself. The, it just is a shorthand way of recognizing that there should always be times where we are learning and changing our mind. And it's one of the reasons as you opened about political uh, leadership, I often distinguish between political leadership and then kind of the rest of life. Because while I would hope every political leader is open to reframing and more information and so forth, there are so many other things that come into play there and seem to keep that from happening sometimes. But for for us as leaders, you, you give us a number of ways to show up uh, as open-minded, as intellectually curious leaders, um, you know, listening to understand in an active and empathetic way. Uh, you mentioned earlier, refraining from giving advice until we have fully listened and they have asked for it. Um, taking notes during meetings when other people are talking and, and you know, making it clear that I am engaging with what you're telling me and refraining from interrupting, from talking and so forth until I'm, I'm hearing those things. I'm curious because at the heart of being ambitious, as I think about this, and as I started reading through this section about humility, humble leadership in relationship to others, there can be a concern, a fear, and I have experienced this personally in my career and I know others do too from time to time, that if I don't take the opportunity to self-promote, to tell you about my work, my achievements, how awesome I am, that you'll never know. And then I'll be overlooked and not you know, get the benefit of those things. And so I'm curious in your research, how did you find that the most effective ambitious leaders resolve that tension for themselves? Uh, do they, does it exist? Is it real? Is it imagined or is it real? And then they have a way to deal with it. That is a very insightful question because it's a question that I get asked a lot, especially by the younger leaders, right? They all push back a little bit on the idea because they say, they say, yeah, yeah, the research that you're quoting is very, very good, but most of it is done with CEOs that have already proven themselves, right? CEOs who are already there at that level. What about me starting my career right now? How do I advance my career? And as you said, self-promote without appearing like I'm arrogant. You know, if, if we take that situation of, of a, a young um, you know, team member who wants to be promoted for a leadership position because they believe that they have the abilities to do it. Again, I go back to the confidence-competence equation. As long as you have the competence to do something, not just you think you have the competence, but others have told you that you have the competence and there's objective data on that, there's nothing wrong with putting your name in the hat. There's nothing wrong with setting a meeting with your boss and saying, I think I'm ready for that promotion. I think I'm ready for that salary increase. Here's what I've done. We can do that in a way that is not arrogant. We, none of these practices go against humility. Again, let's go back to, to that original definition. You know, It's not about underestimating your abilities. It's about looking at them as objectively as possible. And when a young leader does that and 
And they realize that it's time for them for that promotion or it's time for them for, to get that, that big um, project. They have to tell their bosses. They have to have that conversation. It, it does not go against humility. And, and you know, that, that is why this concept works so well about balancing the humility and the ambition. This is when you bring in your ambition. But it also is not a blind ambition for only self-centered reasons, right? So it could very well be because, yes, I deserve the promotion and I want to get that project, but also what are you going to do in return, right? N- not just what, what you're going to get from the opportunity, but what you're going to give back to the opportunity, to the team and to the organization. So when we present it that way, I think it takes away the discomfort with it. It takes away the, the, you know, the possible interpretations of arrogance. And it's, it's an approach that I suggest everyone should do, especially young leaders. And if we're going to go there, especially young female leaders. Absolutely. Raising your hand is not in conflict with humility. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. You're making me uh, smile inwardly as you describe this, because there was a moment in my career where I had been promoted and I had been promoted into a role where I now had uh, one of my responsibilities was uh, direct presentations, executive presentations to the board of directors. And uh, I still remember that very first time that I did that because and I think at the opposite of confidence that you were talking about, the confidence of, hey, I know that I belong here. I know I've done this and this is, I'm raising my hand. The opposite of that is insecurity, I think. And uh, I, I came from a place of, I want to prove to them that they made a good choice. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was a bad presentation. And I was working, I overworked it so hard to prove that somehow they'd made a good choice when a ambitious approach would have been so much more valuable. Yeah, yeah, you know, David, that that word, prove yourself. That that you know, uh, that I picked up on that because there is a great study on humble leaders that shows that the one thing that humble leaders do differently from other leaders is that they don't approach situations and opportunities as a chance to prove themselves. They see it as a chance to improve themselves. Mm. There's a big difference between improve and, and prove, right? When, when I go into a situation just trying to prove myself because of my insecurities and all of that, as you described, most of the time it doesn't go well. Whereas if I see the opportunity as, wow, what a great learning opportunity. You know, I was leading a team of five. Now I'm leading a team of 20. Wow, I'm going to learn so much from interacting with each one of them and motivating them and, and helping them stay engaged. That change in mindset in a way, allows you to, um, you know, approach a situation better and, and succeed in, in um, that new challenge. Mm, that's so important. The, uh, the distinction there is vital. And I think that's, uh, you've given us so many different good way, healthy ways to approach these moments in our leadership. So, uh, Amir, I want to get into section three, and I've got another question for you, too, about how we know where we are in all of this. But before we do that, can you tell us where we can connect with you, where we can find you, find the book? Uh, there's just so much value here. I want to make sure everybody knows how to find it. Absolutely. So it's very easy for the book itself. It's ambitiousbook.com. It's also available on all the regular retailers online. For me to connect with me, it's I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Amir Kaisi, A-M-E-R-K-A-I-S-S-I. Last time I checked, there was only one of that first name and last name, so it shouldn't be hard to find me. 
Very nice. Well, that makes you lucky when it comes to the search engine optimization, doesn't it? Absolutely. I, I am finding that there are more and more David dies in the world every day. <laughs> All right. So let's talk humble leadership in relation to the universe. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. There's some TV show or something that is uh, sticking in my mind that, that sure. I have to go there. This is a shorter section, but so powerful in terms of bringing this all together. Uh, and you have this statement in, okay, what are we talking about? Humble leadership in relation to the universe. Self-transcendence protects you from your own excessive ego. So I'm gonna throw that out there. Help us understand what are we talking about in relation to the universe and self-transcendence and, and how all this plays together. You know what, David, I'm, I'm gonna be very honest with you. This is the section that I almost didn't write. Mm that I hesitated to include in the book because I was a little bit worried that it's going to be a little bit, woo, <laughs> a little bit out there, you know, touchy-feely, wishy-washy kind of section. But then the more I understood the research behind it and the more I talked about it with seasoned leaders, they all said, absolutely, this is the session that the section that you have to include because it's so important. Now, what are we talking about here? We're talking about an admission of our smallness and our insignificance as human beings, okay? as individuals, as leaders. Yes, you may have a great position of power in your organization. You're you know, the president of the company or, or the, you know, the, the leader of a large team. But in the grand scheme of things, you are still small and insignificant. When you start thinking about your impact on the world, your, you know, how, how big is the universe? How long is history? How large is nature? Um, if you're a believer, how big and powerful God is, right? When you start having these kind of reflections, you realize that, yes, I have done some great things, but at the end of the day, it's so minuscule. Now, here again, I want to make sure that we understand what, what we're um, saying here. That doesn't mean that we become lazy or we relinquish our responsibilities towards our teams and towards our organization and say, well, you know, what the heck then? Let, let's just give up and throw the towel. No, what we're saying is you acknowledge your smallness, but you still do your role to the best of your ability because no one else is going to do it other than you. So it, it really is a very interesting concept that we call transcendence or, you know, metaphysical humility, or we can get, you know, very technical with, with a jargon there. But the whole point is just understanding your place in the universe. You know, there's, there's this YouTube video that, that I came across that I, I highly recommend in the book, and it's called How Large the Universe Is. And it starts very small with like, you know, you're, you're one human being in, in, let's say, in this country, right? And then it zooms out to show you, you know, North America and then the whole planet. And then keeps on zooming out, zooming out, zooming out till, till you see the whole universe, right? And then you, you just look at that and you're like, oh, wow, I'm nothing. I, I'm, I'm literally less than a dot in this whole big interconnected universe. And sometimes that is a good lesson to overcome our egos and just approach situations with, with that humility that we're discussing. 
You know, we talk around here a lot about landing in the and, and when I was reading this notion of self-transcend and how it guards us against our own excessive ego, you, you summarize this talking about, you know, like as a leader, yes, you know that you're smart and you're not omniscient. You don't know everything. You understand that you have personal power and you're not omnipotent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's that perspective that yes, you are and have these things, and it's a much larger scheme of of the world out there. Uh, you know that awe and reverence. Uh, I am with all the people who said yes. This this section needs to be in there. I found it so powerful, and with all of the awe and reverence. And if we want to make this for, for some people, that works. For me, it works. I can look at a mountain or at the night sky and got it. I'm there that awe and reverence really works for me. And there are other ways of getting there. And one of those is how zippers work. <laughs> and I just thought this was such a powerful way to get into this and, and kind of bring it home. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about this whole notion of how zippers work and what that has to do with leadership in relation to the universe. Absolutely. So so what, what that refers to is not feeling our insignificance in relationship to the universe or nature or God, but rather our insignificance in terms of knowledge that is out there. So as human beings, we all have something called the illusion of knowledge. We think we know much more than we actually know about areas in in our areas of expertise, but like common areas such as how does a zipper work? So, So, you know, some clever researchers designed this study where first they asked you know the participants to rate their knowledge on a scale of one to ten of how a zipper actually works okay and most people gave themselves eight nine and ten because i mean a zipper you use it every day it's so easy right and then they told them okay now describe for us step by step how the zipper actually works. and when you start thinking about it you don't know how it works <laughs> just like most of us don't know how a piano works or how you know you know, a, a toilet flush works or all of like basic stuff. We think, oh, well, we take it for granted, but we don't really know. So when people try to describe how a zipper works, they didn't, they couldn't, they couldn't really put it into steps. So when they came back and asked them, okay, now rate your knowledge on a scale of one to 10 of how a zipper works, people gave themselves one and two and three because they realized that they realized how much, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And it's a very simple example just to remind all of us that so often we open our mouths and talk about topics that we are not experts in. You know, I'm sure you've heard many people in the last couple of years, let's just limit it to that, who are so-called experts on, you know, all kinds of topics, like how does a virus get transmitted or how does a vaccine work and all of that. And, and you really look at them and, and, you know, they watched a couple of videos on it and now they think they're an expert, you know, and, and they may be people on TV or they may be people that, you know, your friends, your family members, all of that. I'm sure we all have one person like that in our circle who's always like trying to teach you stuff. I have people who try to teach me, you know, on, on things that supposedly I'm, I work on every day. Like people want to tell me how healthcare works and that's where I spend most of my time. You know, I want to tell me how leadership works and, and, you know, you just, you just listen um, but but you're telling your, you're thinking wow this this person doesn't know what they don't know, and that is that is a you know a tragedy sometimes especially when when uh, you know they become political leaders. But but let's not go there. Um, 
so, so that that's that's the the zipper experiment and and the realization that we all have that illusion of knowledge. Yeah, I, I at the top of the list for me, even above zippers, are sewing machines. <laughs> sewing machines might as well be dark magic, as far as I'm concerned. I don't understand how they work, and I've tried, and I don't think I ever will. And I respect the people who invented them and the people who use them every day. <laughs> <laughs> that's another great example. Uh, Oh, this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, Dr. Amir Kaisi. I so appreciate you being here with us. So uh, uh, the, the final place I want to land us here is when we're talking about being humble and potentially fiercely ambitious and, and, and all of that is that where do we begin if we really want to invest more in this journey? Uh, we've talked about a lot of different concepts, and one of the things you note in the book is the research that the most humble people frequently rate themselves low in terms of their own humility. So if you're humble, you often don't know you're humble. And if you think you're humble, you might not be as humble as you think you are. Given that paradox, what what can we do? How do we start making some forward progress here? That, that's, that's a great way for us to kind of like wrap up the conversation because I think where we start is where we started our conversation today, which is with feedback, with soliciting feedback, right? Some of us are going to be higher on the humility and lower on the ambition. Others are going to be higher on the ambition and lower on the humility, right? How would we know if we don't ask others, right? We can sit in a room for hours and hours and think about it and think about it and reflect and journal, but that's all self-reported. That's all what we think. And we all have so many blind spots. So I'd say first step, go out there and ask people very simply. I, I have a tool on the website that allows you to rate yourself. Give that same tool to someone who know you and say, rate me on these things on humility. Am I a good listener? Do I ask questions? You know, do I speak up? Stuff like that. Very simple stuff. And when you get that feedback from others, you know, again, as we said, thank them, but reflect on it and see where you fall on that spectrum that, that we discussed earlier. And that would be the first step to see what is it that you need to dial up? For you, you know, it may be dial up the humility and, and you know, dial down the ambition. For me, it may be the other way around so that we are getting closer to that sweet spot in the middle. The book is Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership. We've been talking with Dr. Amir Kaisi. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a guest here with us on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul today. Oh, David, this was so much fun and your questions were really fun and, and insightful. So I, I tremendously enjoyed it. Oh, it's been our pleasure. So listeners, find a way to pick a specific topic. Find your set of uh, caring skeptics, the loving critics, you called them, and ask those questions, start getting the feedback and you're on your way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>